0: Hi, this is John Stepling, and this is Aesthetic Resistance, and this is podcast number 17. Uh, And with me is Joe Nava. Joe is back. He's in Los Angeles. Hi, Joe.
1: Hey, John. Good to be back.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad we could finally coordinate this. Um, (laughs) I'm in such a
1: weird time zone here in uh, Scandinavia uh so uh, i've also been spending uh i've also been spending a lot of time in palm springs without internet there so it's uh you know yeah um, that's my favorite place
0: you know i of everything in los angeles i i miss palm springs in the desert more than anything else um and i'm straight you know (laughs) and and i miss palm springs more than anything it's magical Um, yeah yeah it really I, I, is i 'm never so happy as when i 'm there um and and I really truly miss that when I see it in film or something and i i'm reminded of it I have this like my, my heart aches um because it's just it's i feel very far away from that where I am now um, anyway uh so yeah you're in the midst of the um
1: the the corona the sh- event the shit show spectacle of los angeles here the uh, you know the perfect storm of uh, of the protest of covid of unemployment um <laughs> yeah uh,
0: i just i did an interview the other day for 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 an iranian journalist and um you know i was trying to explain the the nature of of um the, the degree, the magnitude of homelessness in, in the US in total, but also in Los Angeles in particular. And, and invariably, I think people, people feel that you're exaggerating, you know, that, that it can't, I say no, no, it, it's mile after mile after mile after mile after mile yeah. of, of homeless. I said, it's probably pushing a million people now, if you count LA County. And people don't believe that. And, and the numbers, they lowball the numbers all the time, because I know 30 some years ago, Mike Davis was quoting 350,000 people in Los Angeles homeless. And that's 35 years ago.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, it has to be triple that now. It has to be, and maybe yes. more.
1: And yeah. you see it everywhere. You see it, it's, you know, it's not just downtown. It is all through Hollywood. It is through West Hollywood. It is under every freeway overpass. Yeah. When the, when the city first shut down here, um, it, uh, it was especially eerie because the, um, the homeless kind of had free reign, you know, <laughs> and the only people that you would see on the street were the homeless, which, uh, emphasize a problem a lot more. Yeah, boy.
0: You know, it's true when I I hadn't been back in in 10 years when I was out there recently sort of organizing all this aesthetic resistance stuff and um reconnecting with people and and I I I was stunned, you know, um because you're right. Every every overpass, every, you know, empty lot, the few that there are um was was full of tents in in west la central los angeles Koreatown, downtown um okay. everywhere everywhere north hollywood everywhere i went and mm-hmm. and um not not small numbers huge numbers huge numbers and uh that's you know they
1: just lost 26
0: million jobs um with this lockdown so i reckon there's going to be more tents out there pretty oh soon. yeah
1: yeah, and, you know, those are the ones that we see. We don't see the people that are sleeping in their cars or people who are sleeping in shelters or people who um, who have just left Los Angeles because they have nowhere else to live.
0: Yeah, well, speaking of the desert, when I left, and that that's again like 12 years ago, 15 years ago, and I had been living up in the high desert in Yucca Valley, mm-hmm. and um, there were weekly, every weekend, there were a number, not one, a number of garage sales people. Um, leaving their homes to move in with relatives in Iowa or Idaho or wherever um, and selling everything they had for pennies for gas money to get to, you know, Idaho or Wyoming or Michigan, wherever the hell they were going. And um, I thought, wow, you know, this is, um, this is amazing. There's really no jobs. This is, this is a, a bit of a crisis that nobody's quite talking about. This is almost 15 years ago. And so now, you know, I reckon, um, all those homes are empty, or people are squatting in them, or something. It's it's um, it's a staggering reality, and uh, it's it's funny. I somebody on social media said I posted something about the science of mask wearing is is you know bogus, and there it, yes. it does. There was a thing from 2016 that was a very thorough analysis of the pointlessness of wearing masks. Anyway, and this woman said, yeah, she had a, a woman who came to clean her house twice a week, and she always wore a mask. And the other day, she said, you know, those masks, if it's, it's hot in here, why don't you take, it doesn't, you know, nobody's sick, and it doesn't help anyway. And the woman said, well, I know it doesn't help, but I wear it to say that I'm against Donald Trump. <laughs> I thought, so that's what, that's the new, newest, like part of, you know, symbology of the mask is now proof of your, you know, your hatred of Donald Trump.
1: Yeah. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a, I I think what was it you who said that it was a a muzzle and a silencer at the same time as it was just, you know, and I think that's, uh, um, you know, it it is really, really interesting. I mean, I, uh, you know, I wear a mask simply because of my job and, and when I, um, um, you know, when I when I go to restaurants or something, um, I won't be allowed in if I don't wear a mask. Right. But you know, for, for me, it's just uh, it's just a bandana over the neck that I just pull up, and it makes me look like I'm about to hold up, you know, stick up the joint with. <laughs> when yeah, I go in it's there. really. Well, I mean, I see it's gotten
0: so surreal because I see models. For for clothing lines and the models are wearing masks now. Oh my god! So um, you know yeah. it's it's couture as well as everything else these days. Anyway, I want I want to talk movies a little bit. Um, Let's do and, it. And I want to talk film noir because I know you're a fan of film noir, mm-hmm. as am I. But I want to start by by a, a quick kind of um, uh, awkward segue. Um, uh, because I watched *The Five Bloods* the other <laughs> night. Um, well, I watched half of it because uh, I I just couldn't I couldn't get through it all. And, and I love Delroy Lindo, you know, <laughs> um, and and I've loved him since he did um, *Bright Angel* for my friend Michael Fields, which is a great film, by the way. Um, if you ever get a chance, I actually worked with Michael Little on that script, but um, it's Richard Ford, um, and and um, and then he of course he did Malcolm, and and now he does the TV show. But he's a terrific actor, and he's terrific in this. But it's um, the thing that struck me is that in some ways Spike is is the Black Tarantino in a certain way, oh, that's um, and and it's this kind of self conscious. Uh, quoting popular culture all the time and history. I mean, Spike's smarter than Tarantino, but, but he had a scene at the beginning of that they're in Vietnam, all these GIs returned to Vietnam and um, they're, they're uh, on a canal on a boat and, and, you know, it's the floating market mm-hmm. um, and uh, just like Thailand really. And, and some Vietnamese comes by trying to sell him a chicken, and the guy won't back off, he just keeps sticking a chicken in his face. Okay, no Vietnamese would do that, they don't <laughs> do that. No Thai would do that, they yeah. do not do that. Yeah. It's like the last thing they would do. And, um, and the Vietnamese said something about, Well, you know, I speaks English, and um, this other Vietnamese says, well, you know, with the fall of Saigon, and I thought, no, to them, it's the liberation of Saigon. Absolutely. And, yeah. and it's interesting that Spike doesn't even bother, it's just laziness, you know, and it's a
1: kind of weird racism. Well, it's, um, it's also enforcing the dominant narrative of, of what it is, you know, we, uh, the Americans lost that war, it wasn't that the, uh, uh, that the Vietnamese won, it was the Americans lost and yeah, um, yeah, and that's what this that's what is this is like all those films that came out
0: in in the in the seventies, um some of which were very good, um that were about yeah, we lost the war and it was a wound on masculine um consciousness or something in the u s This was just a reprieve of that in a sense um with with um black history tutorials tossed in or something. Um, it was, but it, but he's appalling. It was a, it, it was a, the scenes are awkward and badly written, and I I don't get it. It's gotten rave reviews, of course.
1: So anyway, mm-hmm. well,
0: um, well, you know,
1: I've I've stopped watching so much television lately because it was just all all crap that I that I had seen. You know, a few shows kind of slipped through the cracks here and there. Um, I think I meant to tell you that the last show that I someone got into was uh, the new pope with. Uh, Jude Law. Uh, yeah,
0: somebody else mentioned that to me, and I've not seen it.
1: It's 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 interesting um, watching it now because um, um, it's uh, it's an incredibly fascistic show, very fascistic. Um, hmm. It is also um, it's about contraction, and it's it's about uh, you know Jude Law becomes a be, uh, is appointed the new pope. Um, for some kind of uh you know through political intrigue and everything uh but uh, he is not the pope that was originally appointed he becomes um, he becomes very dogmatic and very uh exclusionary and he um it's, it's it 's really interesting the way he um yeah. uses religion to uh uh just to advance his own um, um, I have to watch it
0: i suppose i 'll tell you what was pretty good um just out is zero zero zero, um which is the latest from roberto Saviani um and the guys who brought you Gamora. and mm-hmm. um and uh it 's an eight part as they call say these days as they call them limited limited mini um there won 't be a season two or anything and it 's a Shot in several different countries in several different languages, um, with a very international cast. Remarkable um, Latino actor, uh, if I get as if I can remember his name, Harold Torres. I think um, he's just brilliant. And um, Tcheki Caro is in it, who I love, Baptiste, and and um, it's it's uh, it's quite quite good. It's quite good i mean it is like gamora it's good in the same way that gamora is good Mm -hmm. and this is an interesting topic because i i was discussing this and and it'll be interesting your thoughts here too um there's a show yellowstone which is like a contemporary cowboy melodrama it's a kevin Kevin Costner. costner yeah yeah but um tyler sheridan I think that's his name, Taylor Sheridan, mm-hmm. uh, wrote it, and he's a good writer. Now, speaking of fascistic, it's utterly fascistic, you know. I mean, it's it's as reactionary probably as it's possible to get, and yet it's a kind of it's honestly reactionary at least. But the writing is genuinely several notches better than what you usually hear. Nobody nobody talks in, um, you know, snark or ironically or or sarcastically. And and um, and you find yourself drawn into in that way melodramas can be very effective. You find yourself drawn into it by virtue of all the things that aren't in it. Mm-hmm. Now it's also you know sort of weird Valentine to white masculinity or something, but in a good sense. You know it's sure. it's um, it's, a, it's a you should watch it because it's. It, it's not quite what you think it
1: is, um, and it's virtue you know, Ke- virtual the writing. You know, Kevin Costner has always sort of gotten a bad rap, and um, you know he has done some projects. Uh, well, first of all, I should uh, I should say that I was completely obsessed with Kevin Costner when I was uh, uh, when I was about twelve or thirteen years old, and <laughs> it started with Field of Dreams. Um, and I think he does capture this sort of a um, sort of white masculine. Uh, ideal that is um, somehow very attractive to a you know twelve year old uh, gay Mexican boy. Um, I totally get this though. I totally get
0: this. Um, and and I mean, on one level, he's an appalling actor. You know, he always has his tongue oh, in his mouth, which is which is a really weird thing. But in another sense, he did that that film in which he played an escaped convict and he's on the run with a little boy. There's some. Oh, that's great. And it's actually a pretty great film. Yeah.
1: Oh, the comic- uh, oh God, what is the name of that film? I John? can't think of the name A of Perfect it. World. It's A Perfect World. The perfect World. Eastwood. Eastwood. Laura Dern and was in it as well. Laura
0: Dern and Eastwood and Costner, and they chase this guy. And he's the turns out to be a better parent to the boy than his own parents. And there was a truth in that, in this case, because because... You know he treats the boy with respect and so forth. Um, and and Costner's, notwithstanding, he has you know his prison clothes are tailored. Um, notwithstanding <laughs> that, um, uh, he he was quite okay in it. Which brings up another. Here's a here's a really weird bit of uh, you don't know semiology or something. I don't know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> but um, there there are a bunch of um, there are. Japan is very big on reproducing early American clothing especially military issue clothing and there's a number of companies that like religiously go out of their way find old looms to weave the stuff on they find the old buttons and and yarn used and everything to religiously duplicate you know 1945 um, Army issued chinos and stuff and fighter jackets, and one of the things they issued and because I always used to wonder um, there was a there was a generational divide um, in appreciation of Steve McQueen uh, when I was a boy, like younger guys thought McQueen was really, really cool. I thought mcQueen I still think McQueen is basically pretty cool; he was a working class kid and oh absolutely yeah. and had a tough upbringing, and I always liked him. In The Great Escape, though, which was arguably, you know, his most popular performance, he's wearing army chinos, but he had them tailored. So they weren't so baggy because the army issue ones that we see photographs of that, notoriously baggy, the top block, as they say in clothing, was was really, really baggy. And so he wouldn't wear them. And when that film came out, all the older men I knew spotted that which I find really fascinating. Sort of as thought, a
1: fraudulence of character, right? That yeah, and they thought plenty.
0: McQueen was really lame for doing that. Huh. That's so interesting. There's a, I, that's the kind of stuff that fascinates what I occupy myself yeah. with up here in Norway. Anyway. So,
1: so, you know, John, just real quick, going back to, the, um, to A Perfect World, um, it's so interesting you say that. And uh, forgive me if I delve in, a little bit into some of my yeah, personal history, but... Um, uh, you know, Kevin Costner's relationship with the child there was um, incredibly interesting. And it's the film that really kind of hooked me because, you know, I grew up with, uh, with an immigrant father who was very Mexican, who was uh, 5'3", who worked um, um, washing dishes at an airport, uh, who used to, you know, uh, wash cars for $3.35 an hour in the hot Arizona sun. Um, and he was almost too busy working to really be uh, a, a very um, affectionate father. So when that film came out, um, it, it, it's from the perspective of, uh, you know, of, of an innocent child, I think, who's maybe right. about eight or nine in that film. I sort of saw myself in that. And, um, I you know, it was really easy to... Um, contrast the type of father figure that kevin costner had become in the film with sort of my own father you know but again he, you know we have these um white masculine ideals that um that are you know glorified for for a young mexican boy and i remember thinking at the time which was so <laughs> utterly ridiculous now i i at once had a sense of uh, Erotic attraction to Costner, but also this uh, these uh, filial like feelings for him in that film It's very interesting. Anyway, that interesting.
0: is in, no, but it is interesting, and and um, this is I mean it's interesting in a way that that is Eastwood. You see, because um, there is a corner of Eastwood that that emerges every now and then. Um, that is the like the honorable um, masculine um, uh, white i don 't know what the word i 'm looking for ethos that that is um, that is concerned with honor and dignity and and fairness and all this stuff it 's usually completely obscured with sadism and jingoism and all these other things with Eastwood, but every now and then now you really now hearing this, you absolutely have to watch. Yellowstone. Yeah. Because Costner is the patriarch of this great family who owns like half of Wyoming or something or Montana, whatever it is. Um, I'm not sure they say exactly, and this huge, huge ranch with a million acres. Um and he has a weak son and um a, a wild sort of um but very brilliant daughter and then he has a kind of stepson that he took in because the boy had shot his abusive real father um to stop from getting beaten to death and the costner character covers that up and takes him in as his stepson and this is a running through line so this you're gonna you will have much to ponder um in relationship to a perfect world because it's almost it's it's almost that um all over again uh so yeah interesting i the reason i brought up film noir was because i have i've been thinking about it recently and and again i mean i do this periodically mm-hmm. um but somebody had asked me to to on on facebook you know one film still each day the films that that affected you that shaped your life and one of the ones i put up immediately was out of the past yeah uh, which is Jacques Tournier directed with Robert Mitchum and, and Kirk Douglas as the villain, uh, a very early role of his. And um, it's uh, Jane Greer. And it's, um, it's an extraordinary film and, and it's credited to Jeffrey Holmes, but that's because um, the real author was, was blacklisted, um, Daniel Mainwaring, uh, who's a terrific writer. And a communist, and a and a uh, you you listen to the voiceovers.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Of course, it helps to have Robert Mitchum reading your voiceovers. <laughs> um, you know, uh, but but extraordinary, extraordinary, and and just poetry. You know, I mean, it's yeah. so and it's interesting though. When I mention that film, invariably it's a favorite film of of my friends who are men, it is not a favorite film of my friends who are women. They kind of, women I know go, well, yes, okay, but that's, it's all very, you know, femme fatale, and they don't, the men adore that film. There's something of a romantic um, pull that that film, I mean, that's how everybody (laughs) wants to go out, you know, Mm -hmm. if you're going to crash and burn um, in a relationship, that's the way to do it somehow. Um, and and it's a extraordinarily erotic, beautiful, and, and romantic film. I think, um, and and it's it's 1947, 46 and 47 were the great two years for film noir. For
1: film noir, yeah, is you know post-world, uh, sorry, post uh, post-war. Uh, you get a lot of the Germans coming in. Who who directed that again? I'm sorry, John.
0: Jacques Tourneur, who who um, did most of his work for Val Luton, um, who was a Russian émigré and, and produced super low-budget stuff um, uh, for RKO and whatnot, and did I Walk With a Zombie and Ghost yeah. Ship and Cat People and Leopard Man, and I'm a huge, huge Val Lewton fan. But um this was the one time Tourneur had a slightly larger budget and was working with actual stars. Mm-hmm. And um and he made the perfect noir in a sense. I think it's the the greatest of noir films, and there's others that come close. Crisscross, the with Burt Lancaster, the Robert Siodmak film is is probably my second favorite. But um it it that yeah, it was a it was it was a post war. Um, you know, German Jews fleeing uh, fascism, and they turned everything into a psychoanalytic study of fascism. I mean, on some level, all the films end up being about authority and the state, and um, and and how flawed people are, and uh, the enemy is within, but it's within because the enemy is really without. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: You know what was interesting about about that for me when I was first attracted to uh, film noir in film school was um <clears throat> uh just a sense of alienation that and, and it it's not necessarily in the um you know within the characters sure yeah, it's in the characters and the way the way it's shot but it was um there are no reference points that um that the, uh, that the viewer would take from classical Hollywood, you know, you get the moral ambiguity of um, you get the moral ambiguity of usually the detective for hire. Um, yeah. The woman is completely eroticized. Uh, they are very um, uh, there's so much violence um, that is uh, just inherent, not necessarily that you see, but, uh, but you feel, you feel, you feel the violence on uh, on the screen, and you feel the sense of uh, nihilism that these uh, yeah, absolutely. brought from the, uh, you know, um, like for example, um, um, the film, like The Killers. You know that opening yeah. scene is so very good. Oh, uh, it's amazing. Yeah, but, um, what what do you think it is about? Uh, I mean, other than the obvious about you know about these German Jews working in Hollywood that allowed them to uh, explore these uh, these themes. What what do you think? Well,
0: I think I think um, you know it, it's interesting. Um, Franco Moretti has a great couple of essays about um, the United States. I, if I'm not mistaken, the book's The Far Country. I don't know, but anyway, Moretti has an essay. I think the final one in that collection about westerns. And film noir, and he sees westerns as a continuation of a Hemingway conservatism, which I think is right. I love Hemingway, but he's conservative, and he's in a not necessarily reactionary bad way politically. But there is a conservatism, and that um, film noir was was the radical um subversive uh distrustful paranoid it was the it was the 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 genre of suspicion and one observation i remember he made is that in westerns the violence is outdoors usually and people are at least 30 40 feet apart when they shoot each other
1: mm-hmm.
0: and that it takes place in a town uh, that witnesses this, and you know, it's why High Noon is seen as such a classic Western. Yeah. And in film noir, the gun is inches from the person you shoot.
1: Wow. Yeah.
0: And it's invariably indoors. Yes. And of course, it's invariably at at night, and it's just been raining. But that's that's just style. Well, um, but I always thought that was a very telling observation.
1: Well, you well, you know. Um... Oh, I'm sorry. Just losing my train of thought a little (laughs) bit. I know I've lost
0: my train of thought three or four times here. Um, No, I, but, but that sense of intimacy, I guess that's what I'm trying to get at. The, the, the violence feels intimate and personal and, and, and unwitnessed. The only person witnessing it is the camera. Um, You, it, it, it takes place, the violence and the narrative itself take place in secret spaces, in dark spaces, in illicit spaces, um, and all the male-female relate. All the eroticism is tinged with an illicit quality, I think. And and um, the when when those films ran with the the template of the private detective, and that's a really interesting huge Mm -hmm. discussion but the the detective became the knight errant right he was in search of the truth and you'd like philip Marlowe. he always gets fired and beaten up but he (laughs) persists anyway right because because he has to find the truth that's that's his calling and that's his quest and and that runs through all of it so in a sense the 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 popular Grasp of noir as as cynical is wrong because it's hugely idealistic mm-hmm. um, and and the character of the private eye is is this upholder of a personal code of of honor and and truth, and it was always a search for truth um, not for not for finding the perpetrator or the guilty or something and that changed that changed in the fifties as you ushered in what the, what the Kaye critics called sunlit noir, mm-hmm. but I can almost identify the film that changed it. And in some ways, it's a brilliant film. And that's Jack Webb's original feature, Dragnet. Uh, it's partly brilliant. Yeah. Webb was a, was a weird, boy, what a weird figure he was. Anyway. Um, and, and Dragnet has one of the great opening sequences, Ever plus Richard Boone is in it, which makes it watchable. Um, but it was the beginning of this. The quest was for law and order, for upholding the law, not a search for the truth. It was in finding who was guilty. Um, you know, the tagline was just the facts, man. Mm-hmm. Um, it 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 that runs very much counter to Bogart in you know. Uh, all of his
1: his philip marlowe films the big sleep no 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 is that around i'm sorry to interrupt uh is is that around the same time that um uh you know the the sheer from the protagonist happened from usually the criminal or an ordinary man caught up in um uh caught up in fake caught up in crime um and then it went to the cops, right? It was a yeah, shift in perspective. Yeah. It became the police now, where the police before were always mistrusted. The, the police themselves exactly. were criminals. Exactly. Uh, yeah, Chandler,
0: like, Hammett, those people distrusted the police. They were always corrupt. Um, Los Angeles had a whole history of corruption, and then that's how they saw it. And those German directors, the German Jew directors, distrusted authority. They weren't going to side with the state and and um, with the police ever. So um, that was the big shift. And and Jack Webb loomed as, you know, the cop and just the facts. And he didn't care if you were innocent um, of the crime or what the truth was. He simply wanted to find the guilty and uphold um, the values of the state and and the status quo. And it culminated, I suppose one can look at it at that trajectory as culminating with Dirty Harry mm-hmm. um, and the beginning of The Vigilante Cop, which then just morphed into superhero vigilantes, uh, which were then seen as somehow a good thing ridding the city of, of evil, and it became decidedly anti-working class. Um, and And the earlier you know, incarnation was always very pro working class. I mean, one of the interesting things about noir, and and especially, I mean, Dana Andrews. I'm a big Dana Andrews fan. Mm-hmm. And he did two of the really great Preminger noirs. And Otto Preminger was one of the great directors of noirs. Never mind his later bloated Hollywood epics. He was a terrific director of noirs. And um, where the sidewalk ends. Um, and, and laura Elora, yeah, laura was uh, fallen angel angel face these are these are great films and but it's really working dana andrews you know he always has a, a room in a cheap hotel you know and they're really cheap hotels with a bare light bulb hanging from the ceiling yeah um there was no effort to to um, house them in in you know pleasant
1: surroundings, or that they were the bourgeoisie they were not well part of that and, also was also- was also because there were b films right there were cheap yeah. they were you know most Absolutely. of these films were shot within uh you know sometimes within a week maybe ten days of of production yeah. so yeah you know um but uh, what what strikes me about film noir too and you you mentioned this earlier was uh, was you know the erotization of violence um yeah I, I need to tie this real quick into Hitchcock, which uh, um, it's always interesting watching, uh, you know, and Hitchcock kind of worked in noir, I guess you could call rope noir notorious. Well, yeah, you know, Hitchcock, kind of, just, as a, just as a
0: footnote, Hitchcock worked as an apprentice for UFA, the, the yeah. German studio. Um, that you know Lubitsch and all these other people worked uh, for too. So I mean he had his grounding. His some of his filmic education was um, was German Expressionist. So it's it's that there is a link there. Anyway,
1: continue, please. Uh, you know any kind of uh, relationship, sexual relationship or romantic relationship. Uh, for example, uh, let's say uh, Cary Grant in North by Northwest. Cary Grant and Eva Marie Saint. They, uh, you know, you turn the volume down, and where it was, where it's a scene where they're kissing or making love or trying, you know, flirting or just necking with each other. Now they, um, you turn the (laughs) volume down, and. Cary Grant looks like he's about to kill. Even Marie Singh. he looks like he's about to strangle. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, you know, I've uh, and I've always noticed that. And, uh, again, you know, the famous opening um, opening shot in Rope, where you know you have the two uh, gay killers that are uh, strangling their um, you know their friend, and they and then they put him in the in the chest. But you know, it's uh, it becomes immediately orgasmic that moment of of death that happens yeah, that moment yeah. of, of, of murder to the point where you know the, the characters it's like experiencing um, um, it it, it, it reminds me the first time that I like I ever got off with another guy and then you just feel like <laughs> oh sh-. like what just happened don't turn on the lights don't move <laughs> you know and then it's like coming out of that that is um, you know yeah, it's, it's awesome. no
0: it's it's interesting. I just it remind,
1: cause, but I think
0: there's this question of violence, right? And, and the erotic connection to violence is very interesting. Um, cause I just wrote this blog post and I talked a lot about bullfighting,
1: right? Yes. I, I wanted to talk to you about that too. Cause I thought it was uh, incredibly fascinating, but um, and, and well, the, the point I want to you know, because well said,
0: you know, bullfighting, um, indefensible and irresistible. Absolutely. And, and it is. And I don't argue it with anybody. Should it be outlawed? Yes, of course. I, you know, but, but boy, would something important be lost. And, the, and what bothers me is that the Spaniards and Mexicans who are against bullfighting are the Spanish and Mexican middle class yeah. and, and hot bourgeoisie, the because bourgeoisie. to them, it smells of poverty. Mm-hmm. And it is the violence of the poor, and it frightens them. Poor kids become matadors. Yep. And and um, you know the 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 story of Belmonte is is so fascinating. And Manalete. I have a man crush on Manalete. I, oh yeah. Stunning. I I'm I'm riveted by the photographs and and the very few archival.
1: Um, Videos of him. Well, you um, talk about his hands, you know. Yeah. And, um, and mano, you know, manos means, means hands. So it's interesting that it just kind of relates to that. But, um, I, well, both, both he and Belmonte were
0: sickly as children. Mm-hmm. Belmonte he had crippled legs, he couldn't run. Mm-hmm. And so the people told him he couldn't become a matador because you can't run away from the bull. And he did, anyways, that I will not have to run away from the bull. Wow. And um, and and Manolete was very frail and sickly as a child, and was frail and sickly as an adult. He's he he ate before every corrida, which bullfighters don't do in case they're gored. The surgeon doesn't have to you know work through all this undigested food. Yeah. Um, but but Manolete ate because he wasn't strong enough without it. Um, he He needed to eat to keep his strength up. he was very thin and and frail actually, but he had these you know massive kind of beautiful hands and he was just extraordinarily fearless and and um and the but the point is that that violence is all the ritual and um Symbolism aside, and and you know the symbolism of bulls and um, fertility and sexuality all is endless. But it is but it is a class question too, and that translates to um, to noir in a sense too. Uh, the the uh, it is the, the the eroticism is happens in a climate. Um, of violence and danger and uncertainty and insecurity, on those streets. Chandler's great quote about the mean streets and stuff. Um, the 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 uh, and it is what happened when when contemporary versions of noir or they try to remake older noir always failed because the, the Hollywood directors and screenwriters today don't understand any of this, and so the heroes are always bourgeois. And the landscape, more importantly, the landscape is bourgeois, they're mm. fixated on, you know, Venetian blinds, and then the, and the <laughs> shadows cast by yeah. all these different things. But um, the early noir and all the set designers, a lot of them for early noir were all all communists and leftists who had fled Germany too. people who'd work for Max Reinhardt. And, um and edgar g ulmer who was
1: czech actually yeah. um and, and that... actually actually you know the um uh, most of the early film noir from the you know like 1946 to 48 was uh, essentially shot pretty realistically um yeah. and it was um you know it, i think it was because of the budgets themselves where they they did not have you know the uh the uh, the the, sta- the the stages to be able to, you know, craft a good, well-lit set. Um, yeah,
0: the set, de- we'll talk about the set design, the shadows. Um, yeah, you know, the, the there, I read an essay somewhere ages ago um, about just what you're saying, that it was an economic determinant, a lot of the shadows, because they didn't have to, um, to fill up the set quite so much. And, and uh, these were, these were the set designers were guys that had worked in German theater and, and were extraordinarily good um, at at creating illusion. But the other thing was, when you look at those films, and my, my old friend Les Bohin, was a screenwriter, pointed this out to me, look at the number of light sources um, in a single interior. Um, even for uh, something like like Caught, which is a little later and sort of neo noir um, Max Ofel's film um, but but even a lot of the the classic Val Luton stuff or or the Siod Mac films, the number of light sources is extraordinary compared to today you know um and and they lit windows and it, a lot of attention was given to those setups. they didn't have a lot of money but they had a lot of crew, and they had a lot of lights, and they used them you know and mm-hmm. and the, it's why there is this feeling of um of depth to to that world somehow, at least so i posit
1: Um I, and I, I yeah. wanted to ask you something about bullfighting um, yeah you know there's a um you know, in in film noir, there's a sense of masochism in with the protagonist uh, that he's somehow getting some kind of erotic joy from being dragged into this underworld. Uh, there, there's there's sadism and violence, but it's not. Um, um, or h- how am I trying to tie this to the bullfighting? I'm trying to. Uh, well,
0: masochism. Uh, I yeah, like run with that because there's something. There's something in that. This is all very elusive. And I think there's a
1: connection and I can't quite articulate it either. Well, um, well see, uh, you know, uh, the criticisms of bullfighting, obviously, you know, that it's cruel, that, uh, you know, all these, um, you know, moral issues toward the animal. But I've seen plenty of bullfights before, mainly as a child in Mexico, um, in rural Mexico, to be right. quite honest. And actually my... Uh, my cousin and my uncle have a farm, uh, where they raise bulls for, uh, now it's for, um, uh, for rodeos for, well, wow. you know, Mexican rodeos. Yeah. Um, but, um, they never see there, there was never a sense of sadism when I saw the bull fights as a child. No, 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 no. It, you know, you have to respect the bull. You have to honor the bull. The, uh, you, you can't just kill the bull for the, for the sake of killing the bull. And it, um, it, you know, like you said, it was, um, it's ritualistic, it's very uh, primordial, it's, um, it's a link to, to the past that I... I, I think it is,
0: I, and, and you know, when a matador is bad and butchers the kill, you know, he screws up the kill. There's supposed to be one thrust in exactly this one little square mm-hmm. on the bull's shoulders and it goes right to the heart and the bull drops like, a, you know, a rock and if you miss it it's cruel and it becomes butchery and they'll you know crowds will throw garbage and rocks and everything at the matador um if if it's a if it's a botched kill and barbe schroeder said to me once pointed out because he was a huge huge bullfight aficionado and he said you know matadors get four bad bulls that are very hard to work with and and to every good bull they get that's just that's mm-hmm. just the way it is yeah. a brave courageous you know strong bull that and very hard to find and so bad bulls they're stuck with they do what they can and they try to um to kill them efficiently and it doesn't always happen and they get garbage thrown on them and he said but the matador walks out of the um out of the bull ring with his head up, disdainful of the public, whether he's covered in garbage or covered in flowers, um, because he he is the one who can do this, you know, and very few people can. And I was in Seville. I t- said this in the blog post once, and and I participated. I got out and and worked um, as as the stand-in yes apprentice matador yes. for these yearlings, and it scared the fuck out of me. Yeah. Um But uh, you know there was a woman there and there's that. So I, I did it. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, yeah. And, and I did very well. And, and I, but I mean, I was just covered in sweat when I came off, and um, John That's where I met John Fulton, the American matador and stuff. And, and um so, but these were yearlings, they had horns and it was dangerous. And occasionally people get gored doing what I did. And, but, you know, it's relatively safe compared to a real bullfight. And, you know, the, the fighting bulls, are kept away from people so they don't smell them. They never see um, a human who isn't on horseback until the day of the fight. Oh, wow. And so he, the guy who was the breeder took us and we had to look through a very little slit on the side to see the male, the prime fighting bulls that he was raising. They were in a corral. And I was stunned at how big they were. Oh yeah, they're huge. huge yeah. i was looking eye to eye at this and i thought i would never get in a bull ring against one that's just so terrifying it's yeah. like your worst nightmare yeah. and it and i thought yeah wow that takes a certain kind of something um whatever you think of the sport or whatever it is um you not everybody
1: can do that no it's and, a it's a it's a tragedy as you refer to it in your blog post Uh And it, um, it does become eroticized too when it's done well. Um, And not that I've, not that I've seen any in person. And as you say, you know, these um, something like a bullfight really can't be televised because you really can't feel, I I mean, I, I, I was in tears when I was a child taken to these bullfights just because I was simply so
0: terrified. It's overwhelming. And, and um... You know, John Fulton has said, and I talked to him as much as I could that day, because it was sort of a, a treat to meet him and stuff, but he said, you know, bullfighters um, who stand behind that second circle, watching the bulls, watching the whole thing, the bull comes out, they study them, um, he said, that that's an area that is, the fear is palpable. He said, no bullfighter ever gets over that fear. Mm-hmm. It's It's terrifying. And um the gates that they open to let the bull into the ring are called the gates of fear. Wow. And I've always I've always liked that. Yeah. Um, no, it's it's uh you're supposed to do the kill respectfully, cleanly, the bull is honored, they cut off the ears or the tail, whatever, and give it to you. And you know, Manolete died because he had two bad bulls in a row that day and the second one was really bad and hooked badly and he was trying to sort of dispense with them very quickly because there was nothing to be done and and he did the first one and the second one um, caught him in the groin very badly because it hooked at the very end but he managed to to kill him very efficiently Um, so even though he died a half hour later he got he got both ears and a tail, which he asked about on his deathbed.
1: Interestingly, <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, but yeah, no, it's and I understand modern sensibility about it, and I don't defend it on another level. I just don't. But but it's it's um, it, it. There is something in the corrida that uh, almost doesn't exist anywhere else, and it probably barely exists in bullfights anymore either, because mm-hmm. they they've been bastardized and stuff. But but I'm old enough that I saw it when it was still a real thing, and yeah. um, and and I was uh, I was awestruck. I was just yeah, I was intoxicated with the whole thing. I will never forget any of it.
1: But but you know, yeah, you talk let, about the you talk about the seriousness of the bullfight, um, and you sort of tie that into the serious the seriousness of of a piece of art, of a piece of work, of a film, of a play of uh you know and uh you're right there is absolutely no more seriousness in in cinema nowadays no, or even in television God. you know yeah. and um um when we strive for that you know i i personally as as a writer do strive for a seriousness uh that is um just that's uh, that offers a uh, just a different uh Perspective of trying to put someone into just a different perspective of maybe it's alienating, maybe it's pretentious, maybe it is serious. As I don't know, but um, no, um, I, I it's Contest it's I've um, seen.
0: well, it's very few things. You know, you turned me on to that that film, uh, the Italian film made by convicts about
1: Julius Caesar. Oh, that's great! Yeah, what is uh, the title? I forget. It's uh,
0: uh, oh fuck me! I can't remember the title. Uh, Anyway that 's a serious movie, right? Um, Stranger by the lake um, uh, is a serious film, and you don't run across them very often and of course, you know what Hollywood turns out now is just and it 's just unwatchable it's just unwatchable um, and occasionally European stuff comes through and and European television is better than American television too, um, because there is a, there is just american the the american cultural sensibility has has just deteriorated to a place that i mean you should hear what um the, the new uh, restrictions and stuff in place for shooting film or tv in hollywood now oh per god covid 19 i yeah. mean it's, it's clinically insane I, it's just madness and, and where does this end you know where does this end exactly um, uh, you know we'll see but um, people are going to have to start questioning that and and I worry that there aren't enough people anymore um, to question authority that and,
1: that's it's, it's everywhere. That madness is everywhere. This arbitrariness of, of the virus. You know, for, of, for example, um, bars have started opening in Palm Springs and restaurants have started opening in Palm Springs. And there are all, all these rules that you can uh, oh You have to put your mask on while you enter. Once you get to the table, you could take it off or you have to wait till you get the food to take it off. You can't shoot pool. You can't um, shoot darts. You can't, you know, you just basically stand there. Don't move eat, drink, and get the fuck out, you know. It's,
0: it's, yeah, it's amazing, man. And, and you know, the great crime in all of this was that they shut the schools down and then reopened them with all these restrictions, even in Norway, which was pretty good about the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was, there was, kids could only play in groups of three and stuff. And my two twins, who were, you know, only like in preschool, um, didn't understand it, you know and felt strange, felt something was wrong, felt there was something wrong with them, you know, what was going on. And, um, uh, you know, over what? Over this fake pandemic being peddled by, you know the thing is yeah the virus is real the flu is real too you know yes and yeah. and um people die and uh they shouldn't have let old people die alone in rest you know don't get me started anyway <laughs> yeah. okay well we'll we'll wrap up here um we're
1: at sort of the end of the time but let's do this again i mean i love talking about movies with you so um i love talking about movies with you too and um um, yeah, I'd love to do this again, and uh, you know, we should talk about a few contemporary films next time. Um,
0: you know, the 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 Five Bloods was the one that 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 really, um, uh, I, you know, I love I, it. Yeah, watch, watch it because it's not, it. it's not it's it's it, everything else aside. It's terrible writing. You know, it's terrible writing. Did and, Spike
1: write
0: um, the script? I think right so.
1: Yeah.
0: I would assume so. It yeah. feels like he did. And um and and yet people praise it because I think the level at which they appreciate this stuff is like pre-mimetic or something, you know? It's not mm-hmm. in their body, it's in their head, in a little part of mm-hmm. the brain where cleverness resides, and that's about it. Anyway, okay, that's all. Thank you, Joe.
1: Um, Sorry, John, very much again. Always a pleasure and, talking with you.
0: Yeah, man, I will do it again. And, and round two of the quarantine one acts will be dropping soon, maybe even tomorrow. Oh, okay, great. man. Okay, John. You soon. Goodbye, everybody.
1: All right. Goodbye. Bye.